0: I believe you already know where to turn. John chapter 13. I'm going to be looking at verse 31 to 38, so to the end of the chapter. But I'm going to back up one verse in verse 30 just to give us a little bit of the context. So Father, now, as we do open Your Word, I pray that you would give us listening ears and ready, prepared hearts. That you'd give us wills that are are ready to be yielded so that as your truth through the word, not the preacher, but through the word is spoken, that we will submit to its truth, that we will be shaped by that truth, that our, our wills and desires will be channeled by that truth. And that we will be given faith to see Christ for who He is, to understand what it is He's done, to believe that message and by that truth to be transformed through the renewing of our minds. Give us help this morning because we are, every last one of us, weak. We're easily distracted. We're, We're caught up in our own mess. And we need you to assert your authority and to speak your powerful word to snap us to attention and to help us hear profitably, to repent where repentance is needed, to obey whatever you show us, and to walk in your grace by faith. For it is in Christ we pray. Amen. We're back in the upper room on the night before Jesus is betrayed, now only hours before His betrayal, and we're told, verse 30, that after receiving the morsel of bread that Jesus had given Him, identifying Him as the betrayer, Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Verse 31, And when Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, get a little while, I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This is the word of the Lord. So have you ever been somewhere where the presence of a single individual just seemed to darken the whole room? And yet, when that person left... It was like somebody opened the windows and, and light and fresh air came streaming in. That must have been what it was like when Judas, possessed by Satan at this point, left the room that night and suddenly the air cleared. And Jesus began to talk about the glory of what it is he's about to do. This is an amazing passage on the very eve of Christ's sacrificial death as He prepares His disciples for His departure. And remember, this comes right on the heels of their celebration of the Lord's Supper for the very first time together. When Jesus told them that this cup, just as we've seen, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. That His sacrificial death would bring them and us into a new status and a new standing with God as promised in the Old Testament. And and so with Satan and Judas expelled from the room, Jesus began to tell them the significance of what it is He's about to do. And the first thing that He tells them is that His sacrificial death will be a display of the glory of God. So there's the first thing we need to look at this morning. The sacrificial death of Christ on the cross is a display of the glory of God. In fact, it is its greatest display. You see in verse 31, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Do you hear the glories there? I mean, Jesus just piles one on top of the other, glory, 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 five times. So whatever is about to happen next, it will be an amazing display of the glory of God. So what's about to happen next? Jesus will be betrayed, arrested, accused, and executed. So how is that glory? See, it has to do with the title that Jesus gives Himself here. Did you see it? He calls Himself, again, the Son of Man in verse 31. Now, we've seen this title before. This was, in fact, Jesus' favorite way of referring to Himself in the Gospels. Uh, Matthew 20, verse 28, Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And yet... When the Jews thought of this title, Son of Man, servant is not what came to their minds. Glory came to their minds. Because they would have been thinking of Daniel 7, where Daniel sees his great vision. And he says, Daniel 7, verse 13 and 14, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, like a Son of Man, And he came to the ancient of days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And so they knew they knew Messiah would come with glory. They just didn't understand what kind of glory. They were thinking of the glory of of power and, and conquest and might. They didn't understand that Christ would come in the glory of meekness and sacrifice and love given in death. So so while, yes, yes, uh, Jesus is indeed the Son of Man who reigns, to whom all nations owe their unquestioned obedience, He came as the servant appointed by God to suffer and die in our place to take away our sins. And it's that glory, suffering glory, that we see here in Christ. Now is the Son of Man glorified. In fact, the language that he uses very specifically takes us back to a passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 49, verse 3, right at the beginning of the suffering servant poems, where God says to His servant, Isaiah 49, verse 3, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The question we should ask immediately is, glorified? How? How? And we keep reading Isaiah and we flip a couple of pages and we come to Isaiah 53 and it says, by being despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with suffering. That's the glory Christ has in mind here. The glory of the suffering servant, Son of Man, who came to lay down His life and death. Second thing to see here is that this glory then this glory of Christ is seen in His sacrificial, self-giving love. That's the glory here. You see, death, death is not just the way Christ gets to this glory. It is His glory. In other words... Jesus doesn't just travel down this road of suffering and death to get to a place of glory. His glory is seen most intensely and beautifully in His suffering. This is its highest display. Display, by the way, is what glory really means. Glory means to display uh, something with its beauty, to display its beauty, to display its wonder for, for all to see and be dazzled by. And, and so, where do we see most wonderfully and beautifully the glories of God's character and His love? Jesus' answer is, we see it in the cross. We see it in His dying love. Calvin said that the cross of Christ is, let me start it over, in the cross of Christ as in a splendid theater The incomparable goodness of God is set before the whole world. And so if you want to see the beauty and depth of the love of God for you in Christ, look to the cross. That's where you'll see it. A third thing we see here in this passage about glories is that the glory of Christ on display at the cross is not just His alone as the Son, it is the glory of the Father and the Son together. Notice that in verse 31 again. Now is the Son of Man, that's Christ, glorified, and God, meaning the Father, is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him, that is Christ in Himself, and glorify Him at once. And again, we see the glory, glory, glory. Glory to the Father. Glory to the Son. Glory of each in the other one. And there's a mystery here that our our little minds almost can't penetrate. But let's try. Uh, Two amazing things here. We're actually about a half a dozen amazing things. We'll look at two. First of all, I want you to see that There is here a mutual joy of the Father and Son that they take in one another as they display their glory and salvation. Again, pay attention to the language. Verse 32, if God is glorified in Him, Christ, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. The point is, the Father and the Son are in this together. And there is a joy that each takes in the other as together they do the work of salvation. And we have to think in terms of the inner relationships of the Trinity here, how the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father. And we'll talk more about that in coming weeks as Jesus goes further with that. But the picture of, uh, of, of the two, and really the three, because he'll start talking about the Holy Spirit, are, are wrapped up together in the joy of this work of salvation that they are committed to do. So, so, so don't ever think of the Father as in some way be, being unwilling to save, standing over here and waiting on the Son to get it done, and then begrudgingly you know, letting that happen. It is the Father who sent the Son in love to be our Savior at the cross. Right? Famous verse? For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the Father sends the Son, and the Son is sent by the Father, and both are full of joy at what Christ is about to accomplish here. J.C. Ryle said it this way, The Son shows the world by His death how holy and just the Father is, and how He hates sin Then the Father shows the world by raising and exalting the Son to glory how he delights in the redemption of sinners, which the Son has accomplished. And so you have Father and Son, along with the Holy Spirit, filled with joy at the thought of Christ becoming our Savior. And the Son points to the Father and says, It's Him. And the Father points to the Son and says, It's Him second thing to see about this glory is that this glory then this glory now resounds throughout all time and eternity to the praise of the triune god. John uses language here that in a way that that highlights the infinite breadth and resounding greatness of this glory Christ is accomplishing in his saving death. and it has to do with the the verb tenses he uses for these work these say these five Expressions of glory, and, and without getting too technical and tr- getting us bogged down, uh, there, there are two different tenses that he starts with one and moves to the other. First of all, he indicates that this glory is now. Verse 31. God is is glorified in Him. It's, it's something we're looking at as a finished work. The, now the Son of Man is glorified. We're looking at it. It's, it's, it's this finished thing that we're looking at as, as Him having accomplished. And God is glorified in Him. And if God is glorified in Him. So so here is this work of glory. It's It's done. Glory is in the Son. Now in His death. It's in the Father who has sent the Son. And now... It stands complete before us. But then he shifts the emphasis in verse 32 to a glory, still the same glory, but now we see this glory as something that is coming. God will also glorify Him in Himself, and God will glorify Him at once. God will raise the Son and seat Him in heavenly places at His side where He will reign. And the mixing of these terms like this, but the point is, this event happening now in time, right now from the perspective of Christ and His men, will resound forever and ever to the glory of God spreading throughout all time and space and eternity. You're not nearly as excited as you ought to be about that. And so picture it like this. The glory of Christ goes supernova at the cross, flooding not just that little piece of time, but all of time and space, past, present, and future, on into eternity as this glorious light of Christ crucified and risen again explodes into every dark corner of this universe with resounding praise. And Jesus says, that's happening now. My death will display the glory of God in salvation forever and ever and ever. and church, that is what we'll be singing about forever and ever and ever to the praise of his glory. And it's glorious and it's wonderful and he wants him to see it. but it doesn't feel too glorious if you're sitting there around that table with the disciples and you're just beginning to figure out this means he's about to leave. And so notice how Jesus so tenderly begins to prepare them for that. Verse 33, little children, Yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say also to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Little children, it's a term just dripping with tender affection. Oh, how He loves them but to accomplish what He came to do, He has to leave them, and they're not going to understand. And and so He reminds them again of something He had said earlier uh, to the Jews. Back in John 7, He had warned the Jews, I'll be with you just a little while longer, then I'm going to Him who sent me. You'll seek me and you will not find me, because where I'm going you cannot come. And to those unbelieving Jews, this was a warning. And He went on in John 8 to tell them that because He was going away and they had not believed, they were going to die in their sins. His presence was their last hope. But to the disciples, this is not a warning, it's a promise. I'm going to go complete the work I came to do, but it's something I have to go do alone. And so you need to hang in here, because I'll be back And it's going to be glorious. So Christ, get the picture, He's leaving them now. And because He's leaving them, they're going to have to learn to depend upon one another. Which brings us to the second thing He says here, and that is to understand that this this new covenant glory He's talking about brings a new commandment to believers to love each other like Christ Famous passage, verse 34 and 35, a new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. A new commandment, he says. How is this a new command? Last I checked, it's about as old as the Old Testament itself. Leviticus chapter 19 verse 18, God says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So so this is not a command that's new in time. Rather, it's a command that is new in terms of its quality and the reality that it brings into our lives through Christ. Let's look at that first. It's a new command in terms of the standard upon which it is built. That old command to love was based on what standard? Love your neighbor as yourself as you love yourself. The assumption behind that command is that you as a functioning human being, and yes also a self-centered human being, will very naturally take care of yourself. You will see to your own needs. And and at one level, there's nothing wrong with that. We all need some sense of that to, for, for self-preservation. So God is saying in the context of the Old Testament law, that you must take that natural concern that you have for yourself and in obedience to Him, spread it out to others. And really, it's just another form of the golden rule. You do for others what you would want them to do for you. But do you see how this new command of Jesus takes a much higher standard? What is the standard of the new command? How am I to love you? What's it say? As Christ has loved you. Now I'm not looking at me, I'm looking at Him. So how has Christ loved you as a Christian? Oh, He gave Himself for you. Ephesians 5 verse 2 says to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself for us. A fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is a sacrificial, self-giving love. John says later in 1 John 3.16, By this we know what love is. Christ laid His life down for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. Now do you see, this is a much higher standard. I'm no longer looking down in myself and asking, what would I want done to me in this situation? I'm now looking up to Christ and asking, how would Christ show His love sacrificially to this person? That's what I need to do. And so, just to put a definition on it, Christ-like love is the willingness to die to self in order to give life to someone else. Think of it again. Christ-like love is the, the willingness to die to self in order to give life to someone else. And that's huge. That's huge. So what does Jesus expect of us as His disciples during His absence? He expects that we would love each other with His sacrificial love. And what is the measure of that sacrificial love? It's not down inside myself, it's in Christ Himself. Christ, that John 13 began this whole section by saying, having loved His his own who were in the world, He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the full extent. He loved them to His last breath. Okay, wow, how do we apply that? How will you tease that out in your life as you live this week? Husbands, love your wives how? Paul tells us, doesn't he? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are you doing with that, by the way? How is sacrificial love informing and shaping your love for her. Not based on what you want, but based on what Christ does for her. Or he goes even deeper than that. Verse John three sixteen to 18 By this, we know what love is. Christ laid His life down for us, and we also ought to lay our lives down for our brothers. There's the principle, but what's it mean? He goes on. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. There's a a lived out reality to this love. It must be not only heard in our words to one another, it must be seen in our actions to one another. Or how about this one, Luke chapter 6, 27 to 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those... Who abuse you. Huh. This is the standard of love by which we are to love. That's really hard. I would even say it's impossible. Which is why we need the next thing we see about this love. And that is that this new commandment to love is new because it is empowered by a new reality that takes hold of our souls in Christ. Christ. Remember, before Jesus gave this command, He's just led His disciples to celebrate the Lord's Supper for the first time. And central to that celebration is this promise of the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. Meaning what? Well, meaning, of course, first that our sins are forgiven and that we are loved and accepted at His table and we get to go to heaven because Christ paid the price. Amen. Yes. But what else? In both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, looking forward to the new covenant, they tell us that this new covenant will bring with it a new reality that takes hold of our lives. For example, Ezekiel 36, verse 25, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. We ought to just bask in that, right? We are cleansed from all unrighteousness. And... I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I will remove that old heart of stone that was hard and impenetrable from your flesh and give you a new living heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now look what this is saying. The new covenant God promises in Christ brings a new power of Christ's presence into our lives. By the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God, when a sinner is born again and believes in Christ, that old hard heart of sin is softened to life and a new presence of grace and life come to live within. Now that man or woman who could not love in this way is invaded by the presence of Christ who does love in this way. And where the Spirit of God goes, His fruit follows... And what is the primary first fruit of the Holy Spirit? The fruit of the Spirit is love. So what Jesus is not saying here is, okay people, get out there and try to work up love in your heart for one another. What He is saying is, let what I have brought into you by My presence and grace pervade you so that now you begin to love with a love like Mine and people can see it. Here's the point. This is a supernatural thing he's talking about. This is the reality that has taken hold of our hearts through faith and the dying and rising of Christ. And what we're commanded to do is let it out. Let it show. Let it be seen in us. Because, third thing here, Christ-like love is the defining mark and demonstration that we really are Christ's disciples. I'm sure you caught that in verse 35. It's rather convicting. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Do you understand? The world has a right to challenge us as to whether or not Jesus really is dwelling in us as Christians. Jesus gave them that right. You just heard it. He said they could test us to see if it's true and what's the test do we love like the one we say we believe is his love really living in us and if it is it's something the world will be able to see because it will be evident if it's not then why should they believe a thing we say right so how are we doing not just in this room, but I'd say, you know, in the professing church. Now, i got to be careful as a preacher, as a pastor, because I know this is low-hanging fruit. Right? It is easy to make a church feel guilty for a lack of love because every one of us feel this at some level. But that's not what I'm trying to do. What I want to do here is is I want to make sure that we see what Christ is actually saying. He is saying the presence of His love in us by faith through the working of His Spirit will be the defining mark that we are His, that we are His discipleships. That love here is not just being commanded of us, it is something that will be seen in us affirming that we truly are are His, that His truth lives in us. And so our discipleship is a demonstration not so much of what we claim to believe. It's seen not so much in how loudly we like to affirm it in our social media posts, but in how we live it with a Christ-like love. What we know of Christ doctrinally should inflame our hearts to love devotionally. His truth in us will be seen in our hearts loving one another. And quite literally what he says is they will keep on loving. Keep on. It's gonna be it's just gonna come more and more and more. Every one of you who know me at all, and you know Kyle, you know that we care a great deal about truth. We care about doctrine, we work hard week after week to make sure we are confessing Christ truly. But if his truth doesn 't get down into our hearts so we begin to love like him in observable ways, how on earth can we claim that it 's true that according to first john four seven we can 't first john four Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If, if you really know God if, God, if you're on intimate terms with God, by grace through faith, His love is going to be in you. Everyone who does not love with his love doesn't know God because God is love. Verse 10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, it doesn't start with us, but He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, then we also ought to love one another. One another, one another, meaning who? So so which of these Christians in this room or out there around us are you being commanded to love? Is it just the ones you already like? Well, what's supernatural about that? You see, I don't think his concern here is that you learn to love those you already feel a natural affinity to and it's very easy to cozy up next to. You're the ones you very naturally find attractive because you already have so much in common. You like the same music, you, you wear the same clothes, you go to the same restaurants, you watch the same movies, you share exactly the same political views. I mean, loving folks like that doesn't require anything supernatural at all. Even the atheists do that. No, he means, specifically, those Christians you don't find it so easy to love. You know the annoying ones? I'm not looking at any of you particularly. Those that offend you in some way by something they've said or done or some view that you saw them post on Facebook. That one that's just really hard to talk to. I mean, it's just awkward. He's weird. You can't connect. You've tried. and Jesus is saying, that one, that's the one. Go, love, that one. I was thinking about that this week and how the church each week gathers around Christ's table in the Lord's Supper. What a picture that is. And as we gather around, if you picture it that way, this big table, He's gathered every true believer to to, to pull up a chair or cushion and draw near... And He invited me, and He invited you. And He called us to remember that Jesus is the one who sets the table with His body and blood. He's the reason we're here. He's the one who issued the invitations. Jesus invited the guest at His table because He's the host. Jesus decided who gathers at this table. You and I don't decide who gets together at this table. We don't get to determine who gets a welcome at the table of Jesus. He does. But what we are commanded to do is love the one that He sits next to us at this table. So who has Jesus set near you? See, that's who you're commanded to love. Not with words alone, but with actions and in truth. Christ's love in us works to demonstrate that we truly are His. He loved us, and now we, with His love, love them. That brings us to a final thing to look at this morning. In this new covenant, this covenant that brings this love, this covenant that is full of glory, in this new covenant, we rest by faith in Christ for what He has done alone. Verse 36 to 38, I love Simon Peter. Simon Peter said to Him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Peter just cracks me up here. Because Jesus... Just plowed into some pretty deep teaching on love. Jesus has moved the conversation along from the glories that He's going to bring by His departure to the love that's going to pervade their lives. And it's like Peter hasn't heard a thing past verse 33 when Jesus said, I'm leaving. Peter's staring off into space, up in the clouds somewhere. And suddenly he comes to, having listened to nothing, and says, wait, wait, what, what, what? Where are you going? So patiently... Jesus tells him, verse 36, Jesus is so patient with our foolishness. Oh my goodness. Peter, where I'm going, he just repeats himself, right? He just tells him again, Peter, where I'm going, you can't follow me now, but you will follow me later. Peter, this is something that I must do alone. No one can go with Jesus at this point because there's only room for one on this cross. And it has to be the right one. It has to be the God-man. It has to be the one who, as man, is able to take our place as men and women, and as God is able to bear the weight of our sin. And Jesus says, Peter, you can't go with me. You can't go where I'm about to go. You can't do what I'm about to do. This cross I must bear alone, but your cross is going to come later. What does he mean by that? Well, just picture Christ alone can carry this cross and bear this weight that brings us salvation. And that's what He's about to do. Yet, following Him, each of us will have a cross to pick up as we live the life that He now gives us. You know the passage, Luke 9.23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And Peter, by the end of his life... Will be called upon to carry that kind of cross quite literally, you remember, but not yet. The time will come for Peter to bear his cross, but Peter's cross means nothing until Jesus' cross comes first. Because, hear this, we are not saved by our own cross bearing, but by trusting Christ for the cross he carried to Calvary, and now we follow him. But Peter is persistent. He's not willing to take no for an answer. And you kind of got to love that about him. Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? (laughs) It reminds me a lot of my grandson, Killian. Every time one of us is about to head out the door for anything, can I go? No, Killian, you can't go. Why can't I go? Well, because I'm going to go take a beating by these four thugs. Well, please let me go. (laughs) And, you know, I love that because what it means is he wants to be with... Me or his grandmother, whoever's headed out the door, he wants to be with us. Peter wants to be with Jesus, and that's good. Here's what's not good in that, Peter assumes that he has it in himself to follow Jesus in his own strength. Peter is basically saying, Jesus, show the way, and I'm right behind you. You go, let's go. I got the power, I'll keep up. I will lay down my life for you. Lord I got this I promise I'll follow you to the day I die Lord give me a chance to prove myself what Peter can't see what he has no idea of whatsoever is just how far off the mark he is he cannot understand how pitifully weak he really is he does not know how terribly he's about to fail you been there? You ever make that kind of promise to Christ? Lord, I'll be faithful this time, I promise. Lord, I'm not going to stumble again. I'm not going to fall back into that same old sin. I know I did before, but believe me, Lord, I really mean it this time. Push comes to shove and you find yourself denying Him again, doing that very thing you promised you would never do. Listen. If this thing depends on me, I'm sunk. If it is my determination to be saved that saves me, I am lost. So are you. Here's what's really crazy. What Peter actually says is, Lord, I'll save you. Right? I'll lay my life down for you. I mean, he uses exactly the same language Jesus used in back in John 10 when Jesus talked about laying down his life for his sheep. I'll lay down my life for you. And I love Jesus' answer in verse 38. He says, really, Peter? Will you lay down your life for me? Are you going to save me? Peter, you can't even save yourself. Before this night is... Through Before the rooster crows to greet the morning, you're going to deny me three times. And he will, right? We know the story. We know Peter will fail. And then Jesus will restore him. And that's a story for another time. But here's what I want us to see. Like Peter... There is not one of us here who is nearly as strong as we think we are in those moments that we claim to be, right? I mean, as a Christian... Talk to you as a believer. You are determined to follow Christ. It's part of the new birth. You, you want to follow Him. You intend to follow Him. But I want you to understand, there are significant failures in your past. And dear one, dare I say, there are significant failures yet in your future. And what Jesus calls you to do is to stop relying on yourself. Stop talking about your strength. Stop making promises you can't keep. And just rest in Him for what He's done. You you take those sins and your failures and you go to Him with them. And you let Him show you the glory of His sacrificial death and resurrection and ascension for sinners like you. And you let Him give you the grace to love like He commands because you can't do these things, but Christ has done them and it's entrusting His finished work that we receive all of His benefits and then walk in this growing grace of sanctification, growing grace of love, growing perception of His glory and through our stumbles and failures, we see more and more clearly how beautiful and saving and powerful He is for us pathetic followers whom He loves so much. This is what we're being called to. Lord Jesus, I stand here before my brothers and sisters as a man who longs with all of his heart to be able to stand and honestly say, I got this sin thing beat. I got it figured out. I'm a strong follower of Jesus. I don't get lost along the way. I don't stumble. But Lord, every one of those words is such a lie that my tongue should rot out of its mouth for even saying them. I'm far weaker than I ever want to admit. I fail far much more than I would ever want to be plastered on somebody's billboard. And yet you are faithful and you are consistent and you call me back again through the sweet grace of repentance. And just as you restored Peter, oh, you have restored me so many times. And the Christians in this room who have slipped, stumbled, failed, whatever words we want to throw out there, Lord, you say to them, bring your sins to me, trust me. Come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. The work is mine, the glory is mine, the love is mine. Come with empty hands to receive what I alone have power to give and let me do the work necessary to let it be seen that you truly are my disciple. Lord, we surrender all and even ask for the grace to do that. And believe that you will provide everything that you have promised through Christ our King. Amen.